Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Bill Flynn has collaborated with Alan Mullally, pitched Steve Jobs, accomplished much, failed often, and learned from many useful lessons from 30 years of studying the science of success. He is described as pragmatic, as a pragmatic Simon Sinek, an optimist and an operator. Bill embodies his core purpose, simplified servanthood by spending each working moment to create a compassionately productive society by enabling enlightened leaders to focus on the few things that truly matter to their teams and key stakeholders. For having a great business, is one of the ways of making the world better. That's certainly something that he and I agree upon. Um, he has worked for and advised hundreds of companies, including startups, where he has a long track record of success spanning multiple industries. Bill has been a VP of sales eight times, twice a CMO, and once a GM of a division with a $100 million uh, IT services company before he pivoted to becoming a business growth coach in 2015. Prior to, he had five successful outcomes, two IPOs, seven acquisitions, and including a turnaround during the 2008 financial crisis. I am so excited, Bill, to have you on the DealQuest podcast. As am I. Thanks, Corey. I'm really glad that uh, we were able to make this happen. Yeah. So, so uh, Bill, before we get into your uh, extensive you know, uh, corporate and entrepreneurial experience and all the clients you work with and all the deals you've been involved in, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because for most people, it's not what they're doing now, but you tell me. No. <laughs> uh, I actually wanted to be a professional hockey player. I wanted to be Bobby Orr. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in the Boston area and had been playing hockey since I was five years old, four or five years old. And yeah. I actually still play today. I uh, oh, wow. played last night. I'm playing again tonight. It's a great exercise. Uh, but yeah, I definitely wanted to do that. It, it it never, the closest I came was I played a pretty good college hockey, but it turned out it wasn't really the thing I wanted to do. I uh, got it. Love it. Um, yeah, well, Bob, Bobby, you certainly gave away the Boston, uh, you know, uh, contact. Uh, you know, I, you and I, I think, are roughly of the same generation. So I certainly yeah. remember, I was a Ranger fan growing up, so I certainly remember, you know, Bobby Orr and uh, the Rangers playing against the Troy, trying to play against them. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, they did pretty well a couple of years in those early 70s. They did. They did. Yeah. They did. Uh, Jean Rattel and Brad Park. And uh, oh, yeah, you remember all the. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. get who your goalie was. Um, Back then, um, Giacomo? Yeah, right? maybe Yeah, maybe one before that, though. Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, it'll come to me. Any yeah. case, so. Uh, so that's great. Yeah. So, okay. So the professional sports uh, didn't, didn't play out, but you've done okay. So, uh, you know, um, what's, uh, and then one more question looking back, what is the first deal of any type you can remember that you were involved in? It could be something small when you were a kid. It could be something early in your career, whatever comes to mind. So it was probably early in my professional career. I spent probably three or four hours on the phone 
with uh, a potential distributor. I was working for a, a networking company um, yeah. in the days actually prior to Novell um, and prior to all the stuff that we're doing here. So this is in the early 80s, uh, late 80s. I'm actually, I'm still connected with the, with the woman I, I met with uh, then. And, you know, she was so pleased with the time I, I spent her. They were in California. I, I was, you know, it was like nine or 10 o'clock at night here on the East Coast. Um, and they became probably top five distributor for us wow. in, in the company that I was at. So uh, it was definitely uh, definitely a memorable experience. Love it. You know, it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, yeah, like distribution deals, right? That's a deal, right? And, and uh, a lot of folks, you know, are, try, are, are knocking their heads against the wall to try to get into a new market, a new geography or things like that and whatever. And, and um, you know, and they don't realize that they're, you know, either there are distributors or they may be just other companies that have access to that or aren't particularly distributors, but they, they sell similar products. And those kind of distributor agreements or joint venture strategic alliances is something that are a huge opportunity for companies and often underlooked. I'm surprised at how often companies are trying to get in on their own when they can right. partner with somebody. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm always for as being as frictionless as possible. Right? Yeah, I love uh, that. Yeah, right. Absolutely. All right. So, so, you know, in your bio, it talked about being involved in, you know, in IPOs and acquisitions and a turnaround. So uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the more interesting deals uh, that you were involved in and the role you played and maybe some of the lessons you learned from those early deals. And, you know, we'll, we'll work our way up to what you're, what you're Yeah, doing. sure. Um, so probably the most memorable deal I had was, it was mid nineties, right around when the dot-com situation, the internet was really, the World Wide Web was really becoming a thing. I was working for an e-commerce company and uh, we had prematurely gone public, just like many businesses did in that day. And we raised, yeah. I don't know, something like $70, $80 million on, I think we had $5 million in revenue or something <laughs> and didn't really know what we were doing. So it was the first public quarter we had. And I was um, in the throes of doing a deal with a very large computer manufacturer here in the East Coast. Yes. And it was the last day of the quarter. We were going to miss our number by yep. 50%. Yep. Uh, our, our stock was going to get slammed. And we, we got the deal done, but there was a process that had to be done where they had to sort of um, sanction the software. So they had like, it had to go through its, they wanted to put it through its paces. So I went, uh, actually, my boss went to their uh, facility where they were doing the testing. I stayed at our facility and, and made sure that all the engineers and whoever we needed, to get them done. He was there all day, you know, from eight or nine o'clock in the morning, I think around 5.30 or six o'clock, we finally got the signed piece of paper. It was almost a $2 million deal. And we made the quarter. Definitely made my reputation in the business. We had we had a relatively new CEO who had come from over from HP. He was running the medical division. So that was that was a big, big deal for me in many ways. Um, I got a big check from it, but it, uh, it also sort of launched us as a company. And uh, so it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was harrowing. We had a few of those stories. Well, it's interesting. I mean, and just to give a little context, because I know we have listeners of all uh, ages and generations. So, uh, you know, this is stuff that Bill and I remember very, very closely, you know, but, uh, you know, back back in the 90s, pre, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting because I feel like um, nowadays with blockchain and, you know, and and, and uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs, whatever, it's sort of, uh, you know, I mean, we we'll only know what history tells, but it feels like sort of uh, the, the stage uh, of that right that the internet was in in, in the yes. 90s it was relatively early some stuff was going there was a lot of excitement people were investing it was a little up and you know it was up and down and of course then you had the you know the, the, the dot-com bust 
you know, that happened in, you know, 2000, 2001, or whatever it was around there. But so, yeah, so for those of you who are younger, the 90s was a time when uh, the internet was just getting, you know, uh, much more commercially viable. Uh, there were all these new things. People, I remember I had clients that was going to just have a website to sell watches. And that was like a revelation that you could buy watches yeah, right. online. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> so you got to you got to keep it in context here. Yeah. Many companies went public too early or early. Uh, and, and, and certainly, yeah, I mean, I still have a good friend who, uh, and client who, uh, you know, uh, he didn't go public, but, but, but he got, he got, uh, major, you know, venture backing and never made a profit. Right. You know, um, yeah, right. back then. Um, and, uh, so that was going on. So you had, you know, you had deals going on that were, uh, where, you know, and listen, it still happens now in some e-commerce, you know, startups and whatever, where they haven't monetized yet, but back then it was kind of, it was kind of crazy. Everyone was trying to jump on the, the bandwagon there. And then um, the other interesting thing is about, you know, with public companies having to make your, you know, your quarter. And I'll, I, I want to bring it back to Bill, but I'll super quickly, I think I've mentioned this best. I remember one deal we did um, where, you know, this is a deal tip. If you're doing a deal with a public company, it's so much easier to do diligence and figure out, right? Because if, if you listen, you know, if you, if you read their online stuff and listen to the, the recordings of their investor calls and things like that, you know, like in that case, they knew what they needed to hit, right? Uh, what was promised, what was was projected. Yeah. And I had a similar case like that where it ended up, the short version is, because I want to take a lot of time, it ended up my client got more money even when there was a good argument for an accounting adjustment and a reduction in purchase price because we just refused it even though their accountants were probably right. No, no, nothing nefarious. It's just that my client's accounts treated something a certain way where on the tax code it was supposed to be a little different and right. it could have cost them another um, three or four million dollars in purchase price. And we just held firm because we knew that they needed our deal to, to make their numbers. Right. So yeah. we said they're going to back down and we were right. So uh, any case. Yeah, and I think I think you make a really good point if you don't mind me jumping in is that yeah. Um, one of the things I learned, uh, so I've been a sales guy for about 30 years, and what I've learned is most deals are lost at the beginning. You know, you didn't do the work up front to make sure that this was something that was really could happen and you had the ability, you know, there was there was a fit. You were you were making progress. There was something that they wanted. Um, it, it feels like you lose it at the end, but generally you, you you almost always lost it very early on. You just didn't know it at the time. So. Yeah. And then, so in terms of, so that, you know, so that's really interesting. And then you were, you were involved with a number of acquisitions. What, was it mainly on the buy side, sell side, both? What, what was? Uh... Yeah, it was a little of both. Yeah. Um, mostly the buy side, because I was generally lucky enough, you know, it was one of those first five or six that did relatively well. So yeah. we were generally on the buying side and uh, I wasn't typically involved directly in those types of things. I was, you know, ahead of sales or whatever. I mean, I, I had some participation in it, but it wasn't really my deal. It was the CEO's deal or, you know, the, the biz dev guy or whatever, corporate development guy, whatever we call them at the time. But those were interesting and fun deals to, to sort of listen in on. And, and, and some of them I sort of shook my head at. And it's like, I don't really, uh, it seems like we're acquiring someone for the sake of acquiring revenue um, as opposed to value. Yeah, uh, and a lot of those deals were that way, right? Just you had to keep growing, uh, especially if you were premature and going public. You right. had to show growth, or you get punished in the in the public markets. And I've been involved in a couple of, uh, I think it was two or three on on the uh, we were we were getting bought. One of them was a really great deal. I uh, I really enjoyed the process, and actually ended up being the head of the division that was acquired. The founder left, yeah, and I took over, and I've had a couple of good stories uh, from that. Uh, one of them was not. We were taken over by what I would. What I'm now arguing is not a good leader and, uh, you know, sort of saw people just as tools. Mm. And if they got to a certain income level, 
then he would just get rid of them and, and hire someone really young and di didn't see them as, as having, you know, institutional knowledge and, and growth. It was all about, you know, sort of the bottom line. Uh, so that was a tougher situation. I was, I was glad when I moved on to something else after that. Yeah, no, I hear that. And it's, it's amazing because, you know, post deal integration and, you know, and, and management always, always makes a difference, you know? So let's actually contrast that for a second before we move on. I'm curious, you know, because one of the things that, that happens when there's a deal is that the minute it gets announced or if it leaks out, you know, before and people inside the companies, I'm not even talking about publicly, but people inside the companies thought, you know, it does create this period of uncertainty, right? People are always going to wonder, well, what's going to happen to me? Is my job still going to be there? Are they replaced? Whatever. And um, it sounds like you had two different experiences maybe on, I don't, I don't know if there were different experiences on how those were managed up front or whether it was or integrated afterwards. But, you know, do you have any other thoughts on doing that right and not doing that right? Having experienced that as one of the key executives, you know, in a company? Who yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of research on most deals, like at a merger level, are failures. And the failure is almost always uh, from a cultural standpoint. Yeah. So that would be the, something I would tell someone if you're doing that is, you know, you got to make sure that there's a really good cultural fit or you're, you'll find a way because the value of whatever you're acquiring from a technical perspective or whatever it is, you find a way to more gradually um, do things. I think that was why one of the deals I spoke of was more successful is we were acquired, but we were basically left alone, probably at least a year and a half to two years. You know, I was certainly the buffer in between the CEO and the rest of the team. And he basically said, look, you know, you, you guys have been doing what you've been doing been working relatively well. It's, we were we were the most profitable division in the company. We were certainly weren't the largest, but we, we were driving a lot of cash into the business. So that would be my, my thing is, you know, first understand the cultural differences and either if you can, if you can acquire that and the cultures are close enough, then timing isn't as much of an issue. But if it's a very different culture, you've got to understand that, you know, as you said, people are already frightened anyway. They're sort of in this fear mode, uh, this threat mode because there's an acquisition. And then if you come in and just sort of run over them with your culture, you, you'll have a, a mass exodus or, or a relatively uh, uncomfortable leaving of people that can be can be a big issue. And, and I did have I did have one uh, when I was we were a small um, online database backup company, and we were acquired by a much much larger company. But we were really acquired by another company they acquired, mm -hmm. you know, even though the larger company acquired us, they had just acquired, yeah. they weren't really a competitor, but they were a different, they were, they were in the same space. And that was a tough acquisition. I actually, I actually decided not to stay with that and moved on to something else. And I think, yeah, it was a very different culture and they just assumed that their culture was better and we're not really sensitive to, to what they've, uh, what they, what they took over. Um, so I want to, I want to move in a moment into, uh, you know, what you're doing now and the kind of, you know, um, clients you work with and the value you bring to them and the coaching. And But before we do, is, is there anything else that comes, you know, for any deal lessons, anything else that comes to mind from your history at being in various places that what sold, raised capital, all that kind of stuff? Anything pops into mind? It's something more, it's closer to what I do now. And so I'm, I'm called a coach, whatever that is. I really see myself more as a teacher. Yeah. And then I sort of span the spectrum of from coach, which is more hands-off, asking quite sort of, I call a Socrates with a tool bag, right? All the way to advisor or, or you know, someone who's telling you something, you know, that, you know, giving you their opinion. And I, I move up and down that spectrum with my clients all the time. I certainly try to stay at the coach side as much as possible because I'm not an expert in their business. Yeah. Uh, I'm an expert in, in how businesses are run well. So one thing I really learned is for that or, or any, any company that's sort of like that, 
is that instead of trying to do a deal, at least in the parlance of, of what I do, is you just start coaching immediately, right? If you find someone who is interested in talking to you, the first thing I do now is say, you know, you know what's what's the biggest barrier to growth for your business? Mm-hmm. And they'll tell me. And and by the way, it's almost always not what they think it is, uh, right. and that's certainly right. fine. Right. Um, and then we just start talking, and I just start, you know, coaching, and that has been a great way to get to a deal because uh, they're seeing the value right away. Uh, you're certainly giving away stuff, but you're not really giving away much. So that's something that I've learned in the last few years. As they say, just get, it's a, there's a book out by Pat Lencioni, I think it is. It's just get naked. It's just just give every you know give it away. Yep. And very often, if I have a humble, hungry learner that is leading a group and is, is comfortable challenging status quo, they often will come back and say, you know, that was that was great. Um, I'd like to learn more. Yeah. Uh, and that gets me to a deal a lot faster. Uh, the second thing I would say relative to that is I've learned to go for the no very early on. So generally what I do is I get them interested in me first, right? I, I generate some interest, uh, et cetera. And then I go for the no relatively quickly. As, as, I, as I do in my current business is I, I have a three-step process where I say, once they're interested uh, and I get that next conversation, I s- try to scare the crap out of them. You know, I basically say, this is not for the faint of heart. This is going to be an investment in time and money. You know, it's going to be some work. You really need to be committed to this if you want to do it. And if they're still interested, then I then I give them a, the how, right? So here's sort of what you're in for. This is going to take 18 to 24 months for the first round. It could take years before you sort of get to where you really want to be. Um, I'm expensive, but my ROI, if you do the work, my ROI is typically well, through the roof. And then at the end, I, I do what I just said is then I, I offer them a coaching session, a free coaching session for 90 minutes. Because mostly what I'm doing is I'm, I want to see how the team interacts and especially how the team interacts with the leader. If yep. the leader is not a humble, hungry learner, you know, I'm going to learn that in this 90 minutes because I'm running them through an exercise and I'm seeing how he or she interacts with them. And whenever I've done that successfully, and, and uh, I've always gotten the deal. And when I, I've had two or three instances where I didn't say no to them, but I gave them the great opportunity to say no to me. Right, right, right. Yeah, you invited them to consider other options. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, and, and it's interesting, folks, because, you know, you, it, all the listeners on this podcast know that we do make a distinction between sales and deals, even though sales are a kind of deal, because we talk about deal-driven, you know, inorganic growth, not sales and marketing. But so many of the principles, you know, that Bill's talking about apply, whether, you know, I mean, you know, one of the biggest mistakes is that let's, let's think about what he talked about, right? You know, the first thing is he wants to talk about getting to an early no. Well, when you're looking to do, whether it's acquisitions or joint ventures, choosing alliance, whatever, you know, you want to get to an early no as well with the candidates that, are, that aren't right, because you can waste so much time, right, vetting potential deal candidates, just like you can do, you know, potential buyers or clients or customers or whatever, that it makes sense to have some sort of similar process that gets you to a no early for the folks that aren't, you know, that are unqualified. One of the things I often talk about with folks is that, you know, you need a clear value proposition out to your target companies you're trying to acquire or whatever you're going to do different, you know, it's like, it's the same process. You, you get a value proposition for your customers, clients, well, you need a different value proposition than, you know, for your, for your targets you're looking to acquire, for example. So it's the same thing. You know, these, a lot of these teachings that you get that apply to sales also can apply to deals, right? You want to do, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of created a set of criteria where people could opt out. You want to do the same thing, whether you're looking for a licensing partner, joint venture partner, or, you know, or an acquisition partner, same, same thing. And, and I did say that because I did think of sort of universal, but I do, I do a similar thing with partners, right? And, yeah. you know, that's, those are people who are basically, I'm trying to hire as my sales team, you know, because they have a connection, they have a distribution connection to a set of 
leaders that I don't have. Right. And I, I want to pick the right ones, the ones that really see the value of what I do and then can translate it simply to others. So then I can get an opportunity. And, and I, I did that real, I did success, that successfully over three or four years with a particular partner here in Massachusetts. And I got, I think four clients from them. And when I get a client, it, it is generally two to three years and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars for a solopreneur. Like I am, that's a decent relationship um, to have. And I didn't have to do any, I didn't have to do anything except I did give away my time as part of it. I would do a, I would do a one or two year, once or twice a year, I would go and they'd fill a room and I'd stand there for three or four hours and draw stuff and wave my arms and stay things. And, right. uh, and, and that was, uh, that was valuable for me to do that. Cause um, I got, I got it on the back end. So let's talk about this a little bit because I I've talked on the show on how in different spaces, like for example, in the investment advisory space, you know, I've got great relationships with, you know, folks like Schwab and Fidelity and, you know, partly the custodians in the space, investment banks, whatever. And they, yeah, and similarly, they'll bring me in to speak sometimes, but they also just, they get, and even though as a lawyer, I can't have an economic arrangement, I can't share my legal fees. Um, it is somewhat of a, like a channel partner relationship, right? But uncompensated, they're really doing it because they know we do great work for the clients and they, they're going to get the assets on the management in the case of yeah. the custodian. You're talking about something similar, right? Where the great thing is that you, you know, you don't have to go out and market to a hundred or a thousand people. You keep a few key partners, right? Happy. And then they become, you know, they become referral sources or distribution sources for you. And if, and, and in many industries, you can, it depends on the industry. Some of them, you know, it's, it's sort of, you don't do it. Some of them it's, it's appropriate to compensate them, you know, for, for it, but um, you talk, you know, let's delve in a little more to that on these, you know, keep people. In, and then also, like, what are the criteria? How, how do you how do you find these folks, and what do they get out of it? What do you get out of it? You know, why is there a deal to be made there? So, what I did up front was I really worked hard at figuring out who is my customer, and and how would I how would I recognize them, and then where are they? Because generally, you'll find that like people hang around other people that are like them, right? Uh, they they coalesce. Yes, uh, I did that early on. I became a Vistage speaker. For those of you who don't know what Vistage is, it's a it's a peer to peer advisory place, and these are CEOs of relatively large companies in some cases, you know, some small, but, you know, from tens of millions to hundreds of millions of, I stood in front of a couple billion dollar companies over the years, but they're always learning, right? And they're, they're okay being vulnerable saying, you know, they get together once a month and say, I'm in trouble. Can you help me? You know, and you know, you get in the hot seat or whatever. And I did that work up front, as you said, do that due diligence, right? Uh, Up front to really understand who your best customer is, you know, why they hire you, what, what job are you doing for them? And then once you really nail that, then you can actually go ask them, okay, what, what kind of relationships do you have? What kind of associations are you in? And that's where you go because you're much more likely to, to connect in that, you know, from a deal perspective, those are the people you want to do a deal with, right? Yes. Get you access to another market that you can easily slide into as opposed to have to do some sort of unnatural acts to make it happen. Um, so I, I paid a lot of attention to that. And then I went out and looked for those those companies or organizations. And so I'm now, I'm no longer connected directly with uh, the one in Massachusetts because I've been relatively successful. I've sort of priced myself out of that relationship a little bit, which is which is good and bad, I guess. Um, I certainly miss them. I, I, I miss the, the lead flow. Uh, but I'm also in some other organizations and connected to those uh, as well. Um, and one is one is a pretty, pretty heavy hitter, which we talked about, uh, which is run by Mar- uh, Marshall Goldsmith, who is relatively well known in the executive coaching space. And I get, you know, I get access to these wonderful people and I'm a little bit different than most of them. So I have some added value. And now um, they just started an agency and I've been picked as one of the first 50 coaches they want to start shilling, which is great. You know, so all the effort that I put in to, you know, I got in because of luck, you know, which we can certainly talk about um, a little bit of luck, but 
but then I, I really made the effort to, to get to know people and, and to add value. And whenever I could, whenever I was asked to do something, you know, I would, I would volunteer and, uh, and, and people sort of noticed. And now I'm reaping the rewards from that year, year and a half later. So, so, all right. So we can't leave that comment about you, uh, you know, got in uh, through a little bit of luck and maybe we'll talk about it later. Uh, you, sure. know, you know, we, we won't cliffhang too long. There. So why, why don't we, why don't you tell that story? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I write a little bit. I don't really write because I'm a writer. I write because it helps me to learn. And so I put out a, a, a newsletter a couple times a month. And about three or four years ago, I read this really wonderful book called American Icon, which is uh, about Alan Mulally, who is the gentleman who ran Boeing for, uh, and Ford, Boeing through the um, 9-11 crisis and then Ford through the 2008 crisis. And he has been someone I've been speaking about uh, to leaders for years, uh, as this is the kind of leader you know, that that I would say is the, is the epitome. Not only is he a, a, a great leader and has led, has, has led uh, the improbable, if not the impossible twice, um, you know, where, you know, Boeing was getting its butt kicked by um, the French company, you know, the, the name is escaping me. Uh, and, you know, a 9-11 happened and, and he took over sort of in the middle of that. And then on the other side came out better than, than he went in. Bill Ford asked him to do the same thing. So I, and, and then this book was written about the situation. It did, Alan Mulally didn't write it. Yeah. Uh, and so I wrote an article because a lot of what he talked about in the book of what Alan did, it fit right into what I do. I mean, obviously he did in much larger scale, but a lot of the tenants were the same. And I sort of wrote this article saying, hey, if it's good enough for Alan Mulally, it's good enough for me. And about three years after I wrote this article, he happened to read it. <laughs> uh, and he's a great leader, but he's also a very nice man and he's very humble. And his humility showed because he reached out to me, he got on my website and sent me a, a little note and said, hey, I love that article. And you did you hit spot on. I really I want to meet you. <laughs> and first I thought, no way is this Alan Mulally, right? Right, right, right. You know, this is like a this is like a, someone who plays um, beer league hockey, who then gets called up by Wayne Gretzky or someone, you know, and says, hey, I want to play hockey with you. It just doesn't happen. So it was him. And, and uh, I spoke to him that day. He wanted to meet me right away. And we spoke for like 45 minutes. And as part of that conversation, he was so enamored of me. You know, he, one, at one point he said, hey, you know, we're, we're brothers from, a, you know, from different mothers. And uh, I was like, wow. And he says, you know, whatever I can do to help you, I'd love to help you in any way. So he is, uh, unbeknownst to me, he's actually very good friends with Marshall Goldsmith and has been for 20 to 25 years. And uh, I took a little time. I came back to him and said, you know, I'm going to take you up on your offer. Here's what I'd like. And if, if it's okay. And I said, if you think I'd be a good fit for this organization, I'd love to be considered. And like three weeks later, I was in the group. Cause again, unbeknownst to me, whenever Alan says, put this guy in the group, it happens. <laughs> uh, so I just sort of got lucky. It was, uh, and, and I've been, I've been very pleased and blessed that I'm part of that group. Uh, there's so many wonderful people in there that I'm learning from and becoming friends with. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. And obviously, what underlies that is that it's not like it's super easy to get into Marshall's, but you know, circle. No, about twenty thousand people have applied uh, for yeah. this, and there are about three hundred and fifty of us total. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, just <laughs> yeah. do the math. So it's uh, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's just a, that's a great example. I mean, it's a great example of so many things, right? Just you know, uh, you know, relationships. Uh, you know, even the value you put in our content, you never know, right? What's uh, you know, what it's going to cause. I mean, three years later, that's, it's crazy, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. And, and I still keep in contact with him every now and again, you know, he reaches yeah. out or I reach out to him and it's kind of fun. I send an, e an email to Alan Mulally and he writes me back. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> Love it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Um, all right. So let's talk about, you know, I mean, people have gotten a general idea between the bio and what we talked about, whatever, but let's talk much more specifically about what you do with clients, right? Who are the types of clients that you work with? What do you do? I mean, obviously these days, you know, probably 20 years ago, people barely knew what a business coach was. Now everybody's neighbor's a business coach, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, or a life coach or some sort of coach or whatever coach, which is uh, good in a way in that, you know, I think uh, I, I value coaching and I think it's good the industry is expanded, but also bad in a way because there's a million of you and why why you and why you any different than somebody. And there's no, yes, there are coaching certifications, obviously, you know, uh, being involved with most schools, but anybody can say they're a coach. So how do you distinguish yourself? What do you really do for folks? Sure. So let me take the beginning. So my my best customers, as I've already said, are humble, hungry leaders um, who are constantly and learning. Phrase, by the way, yeah. Uh, and then are comfortable challenging status quo. If you aren't those things, I can't really help you. Yeah. Uh, because uh, we were never really taught how to run a, a really healthy business. We were taught how to start a business, and but and and it's rather counterintuitive to most people, you know. Um, and it's also not comfortable because you. You have to get to a point once you get through that knot hole of sort of startup and you know there's some predictability to your business you actually have to stop and look back at all the critical decisions you made and make sure that you made them correctly because at the time your hair was on fire and you were just doing whatever you could to survive uh, and some of those deals um, maybe aren't the deals you want to get you moving forward maybe you learned a ton of things so my little tag phrase is i help leaders take the guesswork out of growth um, there is a way to grow in a healthy, thriving way. And, you know, Alan Mulally is, is a great example. I mean, he, he did a wonderful, uh, a wonderful job twice in both of those organizations. And a lot of the things that I, that I talk about in my book and I, and I teach my clients is that what I found those companies that really grew well and healthy, um, you know, Southwest or Ikea or, you know, Apple, when Steve Jobs 2.0 was in there, they actually did the same few things really well. And those are the things that I teach. And that's about team really building a system, a cohesive system of strategy and execution, and actually focusing on cash as your primary financial growth metric. Because if you're going to grow as a business, it costs money. You can certainly go get money, but if depending on your size, it's better for you to be funded by your customer than by someone else. Because if an investor comes in, you have decided to sell your company. As soon as you accept that deal sheet, now in whole or in part, but somewhere in five to eight years, give or take, they want their money back and more. Uh, so that that sort of changes the dynamic a little bit. So that's sort of um, how I get into it and, and what I do, how, how I differentiate myself. It's really my background. I, I have this unusual background of I've done 10 startups um, and I have a track record. You know, most startups are a 10% success rate. I'm at least 50 and potentially 70, 80%, depending on how you count my contribution to some of these, which is crazy. And I was generally running sales and marketing, which is typically one of the hardest places to be in a startup. There's not, there's not a long shelf life for sales and marketing guys in, right. in the startup world. I also focus a lot on the team. I'm a big fan of Bill Campbell, who some people might know. He was the coach to Steve Jobs and his group at Apple, um, Eric Schmidt and the folks at Google, the, uh, Scott, um, what's his name, at Intuit. I mean, uh, there's this great book called Trillion Dollar Coach that was written about him. And he really focuses on team and he really focuses on human beings. Um, and I have a bit of a neuroscience bent to me and I focus on that. And I teach people how the brain works because we don't actually know how the brain works. Yep. It, it works very differently than we when we think. 
you know, we're all crazy. We're all impulsive and uh, highly um, emotional. Oh, we, um, we, we think we're logical and rational, by the way. That, that's the worst yes. part of it, right? That the science is showing not, but we really believe that, not, you know, 90% of our decisions are rational and, you know, and, and logical. And it's the opposite. Right? Yeah, it's exactly the opposite. Exactly. There's tons, exactly. tons of science. So I, I teach them. I teach them, but I teach them practically. Like, why do we start a meeting this way? Because there are four chemicals that are going on in your brain that when you start a meeting this way, helps you to have a better meeting and helps people be more engaged. And, mm. and as those chemicals build, which makes the team more cohesive and they're, you know, you're, especially these days, you want to build a resilient team because you don't know the answers. It's really hard to have the answers anymore, right? You're going to be hit with stuff without even knowing. You know, uh, business is not a hushed game of golf. It is a game of hockey, right? It's, if you're not looking, you can get run over and yep. you got to be resilient and, and pick yourself up and, and figure out from that and move forward. So that's sort of, that's kind of how I differentiate myself in, in, in a high level. Yeah. I have all the certifications on the kind of stuff and I use a framework and that kind of thing, but uh, that's, that's my big, that's my sort of big um, differentiator. Love it. And, and um, you know, in terms of, you know, obviously you've got a big sales and marketing background um, and, and I, I, despite the fact that this show is not about that, I always acknowledge that unless you are, unless you are created as like an acquisition company, right? And that's the only, like, you know, you're formed for the purpose of acquiring other companies, you right. better, you know, be, you know, be able to do sales and marketing. You better, be, you better be able to get a client or customer and then another one, another one, another one, um, or else you don't have a business, right? But the other part is, you know, when you say you work with people on growth, uh, you know, are your, are your clients also, con- you know, looking at the inorganic growth, the deal driven growth side? Obviously you have background in that. I'm assuming that comes up from them as well, right? Yes, uh, many of them are, are, you know, considering uh, because of the way we lay things out, we lay things out um, in in less detail over a long period of time, like a decade or two. Yeah. Um, and then we break it down into three year, three year chunks, and we break those down into quarters. And then, uh, and in that is, hey, if we really want to, if we really think this is how we differentiate ourselves to our core customer, we can build or buy. Um, and inside some of those uh, are are those decisions where. You know, hey, we could certainly build this, but let's go. You know, there are two or three people that that can buy it and uh, that can be uh, part of it. And generally, what I do is early on, we lay out the entire arena, as I like to call it, right? All the players, um, for your customers, to your channel, to your associations you're with, your your rivals, your plot, your suppliers and partners, and many of those are potential people that you can have these bigger deals with, right? You can buy a competitor, or you can acquire a partner's technology. Um, and we look at that in the context and say, okay, you know, let's go see if some of these guys are are, are open to uh, to being part of who we are. Yeah, and and then and no question. And then the other thing that you know is is obvious in concept, but it's hard to apply, which is that you know everything that somebody like you does, and I'd love you to get your input on this, just to make the company better and make the team better and and grow and you know be more successful and all this kind of stuff is obviously going to increase their enterprise value and their ability to sell later on you know in the ultimate exit deal so you know just you know any 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 thoughts you have on that and where companies go right and wrong in terms of creating that enterprise value uh you know or not yeah uh that is an excellent question so i actually looked at this about three or four years ago and enterprise value or exit value is if you build for that it's it also is the same things that you should do if you don't want to be bought. You don't have to be bought, but but you can be ready at any moment, right? If you decide for some reason, you know, uh, that you, you, you want to get out, maybe something happened in the family or whatever, um, or there's just an offer you can't refuse, you're already ready. 
uh, and that's what I sort of teach you. I, I say, look, uh, enterprise value and exit value, are, uh, the, the things that get you there are the same. So what I did is I actually sort of did surveys and I talked to a bunch of investment bankers. I talked to a bunch of people who acquired and got acquired, probably 15, 18, 20 people. And I put together a list of like 16 or so things. And at the top of the list of everyone's list, number one and number two was you as the leader and all, if not most of your management team must be redundant. You have to be unnecessary of the day-to-day -day running of the business. And that's what I teach my clients. I tell them, my job is to get you to fire yourself from your day-to-day -day job. It is not your job anymore. Your job is to predict the future. And you can't do both, right? You can't drive a car and do complicated math at the same time. Our brain doesn't work that way, right? right? So if you're trying to figure out the future, you need to rest your brain. You need to, you need to quiet it, right? Because the best ideas we get are usually when we're not trying to get them, right? You're in the shower, you're on a run, maybe just going to sleep or just waking up. I mean, it's, it's all these quiet moments. So that's the space and time you need to create, which then allow, in order to do that, you must teach everyone how to run the business. And I say, look, you'll know you're there when, when if you were left for three months, no one outside the company would ever know you were gone. Now you're, you've done your job. Yeah. And, you know, that's, it's so crucial. And, and it's something, you know, um, that, you know, it's not the first time probably the listeners have heard it, but I always like when we bring it up because, um, you know, so, some people, because I really believe that. I believe that the, the same exact things you do to run a great company that could, I mean, like, listen, if, if you're never going to sell it, don't we all ideally want a company that could run without us? You know, we can go in when we want, we can out when we want, we can take three months in Europe, you know, or exactly. whatever we want to sure. do if we want, right? Um, and that's the same thing that makes the company valuable because it's less dependent upon you. It's got systems, it's got it's got management, it's got, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, you know, you don't have, you don't have a, a risk of, while the founders, you know, gets hit by bus tomorrow and it's going to adversely affect the, you know, the company. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'd love you to talk about, especially as a coach, because I, I find this that, you know, the biggest thing standing in the way of that is the entrepreneur themselves, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, it's the egos that need to feel important. And listen, I've had that journey myself. Like, you know, I mean, it's easy to want to be the king, you know, and there's yeah. a lot of ego value in it and, and, and it's your baby and all this kind of stuff, whatever. So I guess, you know, my question is like, do you see that as well? Expand it a little bit. And also, how do you work with folks? Because when you're coaching, it's great to give people, you know, these concepts to give them frameworks and processes. But a lot of the work we need to do, and I talk about this all the time, is internal, right? You know, it's yeah. uh, dealing with our own stuff. So let's yeah. get with that a little bit. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and that's that's sort of that part of that humility and uh, that I mentioned earlier is that, um, you know, unfortunately, the the stereotypical leader is that, right? We have this sort of hero mentality, especially in the West, right? You come in and you save. Um, but the, if you look at the best companies, generally the, the, the leader, it's, it's a trope now, but it's, you know, they take no credit for success and they take blame for failure, right? They realize that their job is to make everyone else autonomous, right? That, that they're unnecessary. And yes, the ego gets in the way, but also it's not just the ego. Um, we as human beings and and actually as men <laughs> we like to have the answer yeah we, we we get satisfaction from that we feel good and and it is a good feeling right because you're helping someone else but are you enabling them or are you actually uh, allowing them to, to are you really helping them right yeah. uh, and helping them is is you know the first thing you should say is you know it's a really good problem etc you know what do you think you know what would you do if you were me uh, and constantly teach them how to do that so you are not necessary. Once in a while, you're going to have to be necessary. You know, I'm not saying you fire yourself from everything, 
you still have to kick them back into play every now and again and remind them why we're here. And, you know, I, I, I jokingly say, I heard this a while ago, is that CEO eventually stands for chief explanation officer. You're just <laughs> repeating yourself over and over again. And, but that's what people need, right? It's a great saying. I can't remember what it, what it is that, that people often need reminding a lot more than they need instructing. Mm. Um, and I think as a leader, if you remember that, right, just remind them what we're doing, why we're doing it, the purpose and, and help them to grow, then you'll have this redundancy, right? And, but people with big egos won't do that, right? They, they don't like that. They, they find that that makes them feel weak. And, and that's why I go through my process. I don't want to work with them because I can't help them. I won't, I'll, I can take their money, but yeah. I'm not here to just take money, right? I really want to make a difference. And, you know, for me, it's like, it's easy to say, like, I, I get, there's certainly people who clear egos in that classic ego way, you know, whatever, you know, that they have to be important or they know it all or whatever it is. Um, but I also find even people who, like, you may be more willing to work with, who are not those kind of people, I guess the, I guess I would call it identity. Yeah. Right. So there are people who are open. It's not about, you know, it's not about look at me and I got to be whatever, but they're so identified with their business and their role, they don't even realize how much they're not willing to let go. It doesn't come from this place of arrogance, like in that traditional sure. legal sense. It just comes from it's like, who would they be if they, you know, weren't the CEO of this company yeah. involved in, you know, in leading it in the way they've been leading it? Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Yeah, when when the business becomes you, you know, they say you're not what you do. You, you know, you're, you're you're the thing inside, and that's an abstract concept, right? That's hard to sort of. Like I can say, I make this much money, or I have this job, or I run this company, and and that's who I am. I'm I'm this father, or whatever. But you know, you're you're so much more. If you identify very closely with your your value is identified with the company itself, that's tough because as you know, we've both been around a while. Every six to eight years, something punches you in the face. Right. You know, we've we're now 21, 22 years into into this century, and we've got we've hit hit three times. We've hit with 9/11, with 2008, and COVID. Yep. Who the hell could have predicted that? And some people are out of business, but if you if you if you identify yourself with that and and you suffer, then that's not good for your business either. Because you can't if you're in threat mode, you can't do what you need to do. You can't predict the future. The, the parts of your brain you need to to be engaged are actually disengaged. Love it. So, Listen, I, I love the combination. Not only just the diverse experience you have, you know, the startup, all the startup experience, uh, you know, but also you know, bringing in the brain science because that's an area that I've been fascinated with. I'm far from any expert, but I've been studying, you know, as much as I can. And it's also an area that even the, the top experts will acknowledge we are, we know so little still, we know so much more about the brain than we did a decade ago. And we know so little compared to what, you know, we will know exactly. Available, or, you yeah. know, so yeah, FMRI is a great area. But brain science is, is really yeah. interesting. It really is. I think it's going to, it's going to explode in the next 10, 15 years. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So yeah, I agree. Uh, and luckily, I love it. You know, it's 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 fascinating. I love principles, and the brain is is like the ultimate principle, right? Is it basically makes all the decisions for us? Supposedly, we make thirty two thousand decisions a day, and most of them are not outside of our conscious awareness, and you know, we're not controlling them. And we think we are. So that just keep. We think we are. That's a very good right. point. We think we are, right? We we think we're totally logical. Just I I, I really want to like that. That is definitely a teaser that I encourage everybody to just do do some at least initial research on this concept because. Just the, the fact, you know, when when I did enough of this where I started accepting the fact that, you know, no, I don't make conscious decisions that are logically based, 
you know, um, you know, all the time, which is, which is, you know, sort of, especially if you're successful, you feel like, oh, what are you talking about? I, you know, yeah. this is what makes me successful. I make, I make decisions. I take into all the factors. They look, they've paid out. And when you understand the reality of brain science, it's not what happens. So exactly, it's exactly. spending some time, you know. Yeah. And if I can give, so there's one book that I usually recommend when people say that, and at least from a work perspective, and yeah. it's by this guy, David Rock, who runs something called the Neuro Leadership Institute. It's called Your Brain at Work. And he goes into, it's a little bit a dense book, but it, it does give some concepts and helps you to understand. And what I've found, at least for me and for some of my leaders is you become more compassionate. When you understand that we're really not in as much control as we thought we were, right. you just give people the benefit of the doubt and yourself, you let yourself off the hook a lot more often, um, which, which is good because again, you know, our brain is working against us. We're not in the savannah anymore, but it thinks we are. Our last major upgrade was between 10 and 50,000 years ago. We're still walking 12 miles a day and staying alive. You know, that's what it thinks. And but it, we're not, you know, and so that's what happens when we start to act crazy. It's because your brain's working against you. It's like, you know, run, run like hell. You know, you're not going to die, but the brain doesn't know. It's sitting in the dark silence, right? Love so it. anyway, Love great. It. I agree. Talking about resources. Um, I know you mentioned the book that you have. Obviously, I, there's uh, so talk, talk to us about that. Anything else that you want to let people know about, including obviously how to connect with you and find out more information? Sure. So the best thing to do is get to my website. I pretty much do everything on my website. It's catalystgrowthadvisors.com. My book is on there. And I mentioned when I said I'm not looking to take money is I actually give my book away for free. If you want to download it as a PDF, you can download it. You can certainly go get an Amazon or Audible. That's great. I make four or five bucks every time you do it. Right. Um, I write a blog post uh, twice a month. I have 150 or so on there. Uh, and you can subscribe to that. And they're, they're very practical. They're one to two minute reads. There's always something to do. Again, there's usually it's evidence-based stuff that I do. Um, and I'm taking from other, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. Um, so that's the best place to get me. My calendar's on there. Uh, if you want to learn more about what I do, you can get on there as well. So it's catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Great. Catalystgrowthadvisors.com. If you're in the car or whatever, it'll be in the show notes. Um, definitely check out more of, uh, of Bill's work. I love what he's doing. Um, Bill, my final question on the podcast is uh, is about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people in the world from oppression to why I haven't had a boss in decades uh, and I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Uh, so um, that is an excellent question. So freedom, uh, you know, we live in a country that freedom is one of its tenets, right? Is uh, And I think we are amazing beings uh we have separated ourselves from pretty much everyone else because of our imagination and all these things um so i think that to me that's when you're when you're when you're given the freedom and really the the guidance to be the best version of yourself uh you know we're often we don't know our own brilliance that's what i love about leaders right you can recognize you know hey that was just amazing what did you do there? And, and you often don't know what you did because to yeah. you, it's just sort of natural, you know? So if we can, if we can, as leaders and as people, if we can sort of have that freedom to understand and, and have people do what they love to do as often as they can during the day, it's not going to be all the time. Um, that's, I think that's freedom to me, right? That's, that's joy and, you know, and fulfillment and satisfaction and those sort of things all go together. So that's sort of what it means to me. Love it. Love it. Bill Flint, thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. 
I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.